0: What I learned in that process is that Feldenkrais is not just for physical uh, healing or for uh, injury relief or pain. Um, it actually was helping my mental health clients to get better and to feel more like they wanted to feel
1: That's my guest this week, Jenny Frank Doggett, a licensed mental health counselor and Feldenkrais practitioner. We talk about the intersection of mental health and the Feldenkrais method. This includes how Jenny incorporates touch and body awareness into her therapy sessions, the importance of sensing your body to get out of mental loops, what is sympathetic and parasympathetic activation, and what life looks like when we are well regulated. That is, when we are calm internally. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Schwinghammer, and welcome to the Expand Your Ability podcast, where we explore the mind and body through the lens of the Feldenkrais Method. More about my guest. Jenny Frank-Doggett is a licensed mental health counselor, certified advanced clinical hypnotherapist, and a Guild-certified practitioner in the Feldenkrais Method. She has been a student and teacher of psychology, yoga, and other esoteric and transpersonal practices for over 25 years. Jenny facilitates transformational therapeutic groups with Tom, her life partner of 26 years, and they have two adult daughters and many dogs, a couple of which you'll hear today. <laughs> On to the interview. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the podcast. How are you?
0: Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, thanks.
1: Good. Good to have you. Um, I guess I'd like to start with hearing about your professional journey. Where are you now, and how did you get to here?
0: So I'm a a mix of things now. Um, So right now I am a mental health counselor who uses Feldenkrais as a... um, a technique in my mental health practice. So I'm seeing clients for counseling, um, for individual therapy and for relationship therapy, which is usually couples, um, I should say. And I'm also doing intensive um, growth and healing groups. Um, And then I employ the Feldenkrais Method with uh, several of my clients so um they're seeing me for mental health but we're also using felden christ to augment that um augment their growth and healing awesome so oh you asked me where have i come from as well like how did i get there yeah so that's that's a more interesting question uh i was a i think i i'm gonna start from the beginning rather than go backwards um I've been in the mental health field for somewhere north of 25 years, so almost my entire adult life, and um, started out as a Jungian therapist, uh, which is working with people's dreams. Jungian um, Carl Jung basically taught people to work with their unconscious mind or their subconscious mind, which is the part of the mind that is below the surface. So our, our conscious mind um, is everything that we know currently and or that we think we know. Um, and it's, our, it's the part of our mind that tries to figure things out and uh, make plans for us. It, it's, it's the part that we're aware of. And then there's the subconscious and the unconscious, which is under that. So Jung really wanted to help people to sort of dive into the terrain of the subconscious and unconscious to find um, not only where do uh, I'll I'll speak in Feldenkrais terms, like um, patterns that aren't serving us, where do those come from? But also um, the unconscious has a great, uh, deal of resource in it so we can find um, paths toward healing and toward um, you know like if you were speaking like in a like a coach like to reach our full potential so our unconscious has a lot we have like a blueprint for health essentially in our in our unconscious and and if we're off track from that blueprint and we can go into the unconscious, then we can find that blueprint again and get back on track. So I, I was a union therapist, which involved a lot of talk therapy, um, a lot of dream analysis and some psychodrama for many, many years. And then I started to train as a hypnotherapist where, um, and that helps you to get into the unconscious subconscious much more quickly. And I did that, for I've been doing hypnotherapy for about 10 or 12 years, and um, sort of on a parallel track to that, I've, I've always been in, into sports and yoga and very physical person. And so I got interested in Feldenkrais about 17 or 18 years ago and started to use that to improve my yoga practice um, and other. Uh, physical things that I did. And then when I started having injuries, I started um, going to Feldenkrais for to to help me to heal better and gain my capacity back from those injuries. Um, And then the most recent major injury was about six years ago. Um, Yeah, it was six years ago, I broke my leg. And it was a really significant injury. The the Feldenkrais practitioner I knew who's um, actually a parent at my children's school, um, back then our children are adults now, but we were um, friends and um, sort of family in a family community uh, was with Jeff Haller. And so he helped me with my significant injury. And then um, I decided Because of that recovery and how well it went, I decided to do the training uh, to become a Feldenkrais practitioner with Jeff and the um, Feldenkrais Training Academy. So I did that, um, and that's how you and I met. We were colleagues in that. We were students together at FTA, and um, it's been almost a year since we've graduated.
1: Right, right. And in that
0: time, I have... Oh, say that again?
1: Yeah, well, I just wanted to say for listeners, uh, the Jeff Holler that Jenny's talking about is the same Jeff Holler I had on a few episodes ago for an interview, if people are interested in that too.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a great interview. People should definitely listen to what Jeff has to say. Um, it's the Jeff and Jeffrey podcast, so <laughs> I would I'd definitely listen to that. Um, anyway, Jeff uh, was a really... A significant figure in my life, a mentor um, when I was doing my recovery, and then, um, you know, through the training. And during the training period, I started to incorporate um, Feldenkrais into my therapy practice, we were, you know, we had to have um, uh, not pretend clients, but people like clients to practice with practice clients essentially. So I had some therapy clients who did that with me. And um, what I learned in that process is that Feldenkrais is not just for physical uh, healing or for uh, injury, relief or pain. Um, It actually was helping my mental health clients to get better and to feel more like they wanted to feel, essentially. When you say the word feel better, it can mean like you're feeling good, feeling better, or it can mean that you're feeling more. You're more aware, more in tune with what's, what's going on. So it, it definitely helped right. people to feel better, right. eventually to feel good, um, but better in that they were able to understand themselves on a deeper level Uh, because in mental health, you can just sit there and talk about yourself and your history and what you want to be better. You can talk about your future plans. You can do visualizations, but if you're not really getting in tune with your body and uh, what's happening for you physically, you're missing a piece of who you really are.
1: Right. Right. I'm really curious about a piece of this, of um, when you were talking about uh, Jungian therapy and um, like hypnotherapy, you're working with the unconscious, that, that part that we're not quite aware of. How does the body represent the unconscious? How does the body figure into that conversation?
0: That's a great question. Um, my experience has been that the body holds a lot of memory so what happens in your body tends to stay within your musculature your tendons your um your nervous system Um, some people even say that having to do with the mitochondria in your cells that like there's a cellular memory of everything that has ever happened in your existence all the way down to um birth and even your time as a in the womb so prenatally um, that you have a memory of everything that's ever happened and your conscious mind doesn't hold all of that information so hypnotherapy oftentimes is very somatic experience Um, because you're you're using sort of an what we call an affect bridge so affect meaning essentially your feelings and emotions to go back in time hypnotherapy takes you back in time to um, whatever it is that you're trying to work on say it's it's an early childhood trauma that you're you're wanting to sort of metabolize like really understand what happened and You know, by metabolize, I mean, I'm using that as a metaphor, but metabolize means to understand what are the uh, beliefs that I made about myself and my environment in that moment, and then what are the behaviors that I started to employ as a result of the beliefs that are related to that trauma. And so um, what happens in hypnotherapy is you're, you're using that emotion, which is also felt in the body. That's an emotion or a feeling is that's why it's called a feeling. You feel it in your physical body. It's not a a thought. Um, So you use that to go back in time and then you find that moment and metabolize through it. But oftentimes it's experienced in the body. So, Many times we can have uh, physical symptoms and not know that they are related to some sort of traumatic event, you know. And it doesn't have to be like a major trauma, you know, like a, abuse or something like that, or a car accident. It could be um, that I, you know, I slammed my finger in the window or something like that, or in the car door. Um, or it could be um, trauma. Could be many things trauma, you know, essentially means that you stop functioning fully and your nervous system tries to protect you. And it's a trauma if your nervous system doesn't stop trying to protect you. You know, Mm -hmm. many times like difficult things can happen to us. And if we move through them, and our nervous system doesn't keep guarding us from having that experience again, then it's not really a trauma, but a trauma is where you're kind of stuck in time and your nervous system is continuing to protect you. So that's also how hypnotherapy is related to the body.
1: Right. Right. So earlier you used the metaphor of metabolizing that previous experience. It's like kind of like digesting it. It's um, and so if we live our lives in such a way that we can metabolize our experience as we go, we're not storing it up as trauma later down the road to metabolize later. Is that, is that a way to put it?
0: I think that's right.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. If, if you have the capacity and ability not to hold on to the experience, but to, to move through it, then um, it's not an, then it's not a trauma. Right. Right. And, and you maintain your ability to continue to function in the right. world.
1: Yeah, a, a long time ago when I was trying to sort this out for myself, the uh, way I phrased it to a friend was the if an experience we had overwhelmed us and then continues to threaten to overwhelm us, that's kind of a way to describe trauma, that even just thinking about that experience can overwhelm us.
0: Right, a, a simpler way to think about it Um, well, and, and it's important to understand that our brain and nervous system are designed to keep us alive. That's, that's a really important thing to just keep in the background. And so the brain and nervous system are, are going to, or it's evolved to keep us alive. It's going to search the environment for possible dangers and then, protect us from whatever those dangers are. And so if, you know, essentially if you're stuck in trauma or overwhelmed, that means that your brain and nervous system are actually working. They're doing what they're designed to do, but oftentimes, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot um, and many of your listeners have heard this, what we're reacting to in our environment isn't actually as, dangerous to us as our brain perceives it to be. Right. So the, the state of overwhelm that you're talking about is, um, you know, if you, if you think about it in terms of the autonomic nervous system, taking us into sympathetic activation or parasympathetic activation, um, sympathetic meaning like we start to speed up. Our heart is beating. We're breathing more. Um, our mind might be racing some, some of us in modern, in the modern world, make big, long to-do lists with sympathetic activation, or we over-function. Like for instance, preparing for this interview, if I were in sympathetic activation, I would be reading lots of notes and looking at lots of literature to like study and prepare and write a paper before we sit down and talk parasympathetic is the opposite it's it's where you kind of check out um so if i took a nap before we were sitting down to talk or i was just spacing out or watching tv or something like that that would be um you know dropping into that and it's a very relaxed state but it's uh, the other way to think about them is fight fight or flight is sympathetic and freeze is parasympathetic. So, um, it's not necessarily relaxing watching TV. It can be another form of freezing where you're just not functioning. So, um, I think I answered your question there. Yeah. I might've got off track.
1: So, so w- when we have an experience or that's traumatic, or we still maintain some sort of trauma, this parasympathetic sympathetic system, how, how does that, play out in terms of our our story or our what's that relationship there would you tie that back together
0: yeah so um i mean you're not always in parasympathetic or sympathetic or um yeah sympathetic activation you can be going through your normal everyday life but if if you remember what i said your brain um and it's it's lower parts of the brain it's it's like your mid and lower brain are. Constantly scanning the background for danger. So, if there's a stimulus in your environment that is similar to whatever the original trauma was, um, then you'll go into those types of activation. And then it's hard to just keep living your life, living your life normally, because you are hyper alert. And it can be that your mind is on hyper alert. It can be that your body is on hyper alert. So for some people, they and I've I've seen this a lot in my counseling practice. Some people experience that hyper alertness within their body, and it and it manifests as, um, you know, neck and shoulder tension, or lower back pain, or headaches, or that that kind of thing. So um, that's right. a that's a really nice place where. F- Feldenkrais, you know, for a counseling client, we can use Feldenkrais to help to down-regulate the nervous system, which means to help the nervous system to basically calm down. Um, And it it can go both ways. It can be like less active or more active because if somebody's in parasympathetic, they need to um, attune up a little bit so that they can be with themselves.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. What would, what, what would that look like um, if you were to enter through the body in a session? What, what does that mean?
0: This, this is the part of Feldenkrais that I love. And I think I got it in our training. I mean, I certainly experienced it with Jeff and some of my other Feldenkrais practitioners as a, as a client before I had this in the training. But I think it was maybe a year and a half into the training. Um, I had an experience where I actually was consciously aware that the practitioner had connected his nervous system to mine. Um, so it's that, that is the, like the kind of the wildest thing about this work (laughs) to me. And it's sort of like, in you know, in that the first Avatar movie, where they're sort of downloading and uploading information with their little squiggly lines that they can put into the um, into each other or into their animals or whatever, it's it's like that. It's the the Feldenkrais practitioner touches the client in such a way that, um, and the Feldenkrais practitioner has to come from an equanimus. That's the word that Jeff Heller uses state of being. So they have to be sort of downregulated and in a calm place. And when they touch the client, um, there's a connection of nervous systems. Uh, I believe that's called in in psychobabble, we call that co-regulation. So through touch, we can co-regulate. And there's research, um, I think, through the HeartMath Institute that shows that when two people are in a room together, their hearts start to entrain, um, and beat at the same rate. So I think it's related to that. The nervous system starts to entrain. And, um, I've so as a practitioner, when I touch a client, I can feel if they're activated or not activated enough. Um, and sort of match my body to where they are so that i don't know if that means that i activate myself a little bit more but i'm meeting them where they're at and then pulling them back to more of that parasympathetic like relaxed state not so parasympathetic that they're not conscious i mean that can happen someone can fall asleep on the feldenkrais table certainly because it's so relaxing but um, to just bring somebody back to an, a, like an equanimous place, and and so that's done through touch and very gentle, slow movement. For me, in my Feldenkrais practice, that's that's what I do with my clients: touch and very gentle, slow movement. Um, I even like to begin with people at their feet a lot of the time, because. Um, In my hypnotherapy hypnotherapy training, what we learned was that when you are in sympathetic activation, um, or what they called at the Wellness Institute where I trained, they called it sympathetic shock. Um, When you're in that activation, you're not in your feet, like you're all in your head. And things are kind of racing up here and you can't actually feel your feet. So I, I like to start with Feldenkrais clients at their feet. And um, I envision or I imagine that they're pulling uh, their attention through their nervous system all the way down their body into the bottom of their feet. And I think that is something that we're working with as Feldenkrais practitioners is uh, proprioception so Mm. that um, people are able to feel with every part of their body.
1: Because uh, if someone is activated and you're in a talk therapy session or using talk as the primary mode of interaction and talk is, you know, trying to think through things. And if you're activated in a particular way, it's like I don't. in my own experience, being activated and trying to think about something clearly is I, I can't. It's like a labyrinth or it's 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 there's an intensity or it's it's confined in some way. My thinking is. And yeah, to be able to use this other resource of connecting with their their body, their feet to calm them, that then opens up more avenues of thinking, right?
0: I think so. You know, this reminds me of um, earlier in my practice, I had learned this from some of my trainers in my therapy practice, that when you're sitting with a client or when I'm sitting with a client and they are super activated. Um, and if I ask them, can you feel your feet? They oftentimes can't feel their feet or there's like a tingly sensation. They, they don't feel the, I, I guess the um, sort of new age word that we use now is grounded. They don't feel grounded, connected to the ground. Um, so if someone's activated, they don't feel that, that grounding and what i was taught to do was to take off my shoes as the therapist this is before my feldenkrais training and have them take off their shoes and i would come over and put my feet on top of theirs to help them to anchor into the ground and what i think that really did was some of that touch that i'm talking about in feldenkrais because i'm touching their feet and the the bottom of their feet are is touching the ground then their attention starts to come down into their body, rather than just what their thoughts are, getting lost in that labyrinth. And the, the body is very simple. I mean, it, the body is very complex, right? But it's concrete. That's what I mean by simple. It's something that you can touch, you can feel that's actually there. And when you're, when you're in that labyrinth of thought, you can get lost because thoughts are ephemeral.
1: Right. And especially if one's own thoughts are stimulating or activating in themselves, that you can have a thought that actually stirs you up more.
0: That's, um, I heard a a psychiatrist use this term long ago when I was a a young therapist. Um, He called it kindling in the brain. Hmm. And I think he was using it referring to bipolar disorder, but I think um, it's a great word for um, what happens when one negative thought leads to another negative thought. I mean, some people talk about it as the downward spiral. But I, I like the word kindling, because it's it's a more physical word. And it actually describes what's happening in your neurology, when you are giving time and attention and thought to say, like, you have a, one negative thought, and it's So it has a particular negative neural pathway in your brain. When you give that, um, your energy, you're basically giving it calories. Your brain uses up a certain amount of your calories to create these neural pathways. You're reinforcing the pathways. You know, it's, it's like walking on, um, say you have a new path from your front door to the mailbox. Um, You can't go on your driveway for some reason. Your driveway is getting, you know, redone and you start walking across the grass. Eventually the grass starts to lay down um, and then eventually there's, you know, you start to see dirt. But just like animals in the forest, if you walk through a forest, you can find trails that elk and deer and bear and and things like that have created um, from walking it frequently. And it's the same thing that happens in the brain. So the more energy you give to something, the bigger it becomes.
1: Right. And, and then also if there's a trail, well you, you're kind of encouraged to use that trail again and again. It kind of draws you back to use it more.
0: And I think that's what we find in the Feldenkrais method that, you know, many people come to Feldenkrais as a physical practice and for their physical body um, because they are stuck in some sort of ingrained historical pattern that maybe served them well at a certain point in their life, maybe, but but maybe they've come into that pattern because of um, you know a trauma. So for me, for instance, I broke my left leg and I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to walk on it for four months because of the healing. I wasn't able to put weight on it. So, um, my right leg became my default leg to stand on. And to this day, even though I do Feldenkrais, I do weightlifting I do other sports, um, I'm certain that if I, I haven't done this, but if I took out a tape measure and measured the size of my calves or, Um, my thighs that my right leg would be larger than my left leg and that's because of that ingrained pattern because i'm used to standing on my right leg so it's going to be larger than than my left leg and um so those yes those those are the patterns that we want to be able to shift out of you know mentally physically emotionally Um, even for some people spiritually, I think we get into these ingrained patterns and it's important to learn that that's not the only way.
1: Right. Right. It's, it's that ingraining. That's the trouble, right? That you can't choose something else. Um, our teacher, Candy Canino, she uses the phrase, uh, well, it was in a different context, but to be conceptually nimble, but I like that word nimble right to to be nimble is the opposite of rigid to to be nimble is the opposite of being stuck in some ingrained pattern that uh, okay i can be on my right leg and i can be on my left leg and i can go between the two and not just be on one all the time
0: right and that's that's one of the things i love about um I, and i think you find that most people who become practitioners have maybe a love hate some sort of relationship with Dr. Feldenkrais, who's no longer with us, (laughs) but um, it's, you know, one of the things I loved reading um, Mark Reese's biography on Feldenkrais is that he developed the method because of significant patterns that were inhibiting him in his life. And he wanted to find a way out of those patterns and figure out how to be nimble. Um, so that he could do, you know, I don't know what, he, I'm not even sure what level of black belt he was in judo, but he was some high level of black belt and did other sports so that he could function in his life. And then um, he used it to teach other people how to come back and function in their own lives, um, you know, sometimes after horrific traumas. I'm sure um, you've maybe talked about this on your podcast already, but, he, you know, the first. Jeff, and Jeff talks about this too, Haller, that the first people he taught the method to were the um, people coming out of the concentration camps from World War II and just teaching them how to come in, in Tel Aviv, how to come back to being a human, in a human life after such horrific trauma. So it's it's really inspiring to think of how he used the method in his own life and then taught other people to use it in theirs.
1: Right. There's this uh, significant optimism that no matter what our past is, we can grow and mature and, you know, not be so controlled or compulsively controlled by those stories that we can continue to make choices and live um, more fully.
0: Yes. And I, I, as a counselor, I, I love that for Anxiety and depression, for instance, Um, because I think people believe when they have anxiety, it's debilitating. You know, some people toss off anxiety and depression as not a big deal, but it it can be very debilitating, both of those. Um, And I'm just using those because those tend to be the most common reasons people are coming to therapy. Anxiety, depression, and relationship problems, which can also be debilitating, actually. So, um, to, to understand that there are options and, um, that we don't have to live in the same pattern that we've been in. I don't, I don't know. It's just super inspiring and exciting.
1: Earlier, you talked about sympathetic and parasympathetic. If you were to approach this interview in one of those, you would either, um, if you were sympathetically activated, you'd be preparing, you know, writing a a whole bunch of notes, you know, real activation, or if you're parasympathetic, it could be, um, I'm going to take a nap beforehand or check out what could, could you paint a picture for us? What is it like to not be stuck in either of those activations? Like how, how does one engage with the world? What does that look like? What does it feel like?
0: Well, that's a that's a good question. I I think, a lot of times when someone's not stuck in one or the other, they don't know it, and they're just living their life, day to day, and things are going well. Um, I mean, things can go not well also, but it doesn't. You don't ruminate on it. So there there's different ways of. Um, You know that i i think it's interesting my tendency is to want to talk about it emotionally mentally physically spiritually but really all of those things are the same thing i think we've learned to um, break it down into categories and um, they really are there is no uh, mind body connection because the mind and body are the same thing we're it's all, it's all one. Um, so to be not in activation, I think you are, well, let me, let me say it most simply, like to be in activation parasympathetic or sympathetic, you're in defense, you're protecting yourself, you're in protective mode. And to be, um, out of that, to like be in equilibrium, where you're you're not one and you're not the other, but you're just yourself. You're in growth mode. That's where you can engage fully with your life. And um, you know, I think we humans like we have goals, and then we achieve our goals, and then new goals come up. So we're just growing toward some point on the distant horizon. You know, and once we get to that point, there's another point. Beyond that, so I, I think it's expansive. Maybe not not expansive in a bad way, but expansive in that that we're continuing to grow. And I think with growth, it's kind of like breath. We expand, and then we contract, and then we expand again. the The parasympathetic and sympathetic is maybe, you know, a holding of the breath. It's either holding the breath. This is a metaphor again, or it's hyperventilating. Um, and feeling neither one of those is just regular breathing. It's easier.
1: I think that's an awesome note to end on. Thank you so much, Jenny. Uh, I'm curious, where can people find out more about you?
0: Oh, um, thanks so much to you, Jeffrey. This was fun. Uh, you can, uh, look at my website. It's, um, TigerMountainCounseling.com. Uh, My partner, Tom, is also on there with me. Uh, We've been married forever, and uh, we're both therapists now and work together. So you'll see him on Tiger Mountain Counseling. But you can find out more about our work and our groups and about the Feldenkrais I do there. Uh, You can also email me at um, Jenny at TigerMountainCounseling.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Jeffrey.
1: That was my guest, Jenny Frank Doggett. You can find all of those links in the show notes. If you're curious to learn more about the Feldenkrais Method, I encourage you to check out my free guide, The Nine Surprising Benefits of the Feldenkrais Method. You can find that in the show notes too. Because talking about what we are learning is so helpful for us in learning, I encourage you to talk about the ideas in this episode with someone you care about. What resonated for you? Jenny talked about using touch with the feet to help ground a person. So, the question I'd like to leave with you today is, when's the last time you've touched your feet? Thank you for your attention.